Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm going to be speaking to Paul Shaw, the editor of The Eternal Letter, Two Millennia of the Classical Roman Capital. Paul Shaw, an award-winning graphic designer, topographer, and calligrapher in New York City, teaches at Parsons School of Design in the School of Visual Arts. The designer or co-designer of 18 typefaces, he is the author of Black Letter, Type and National Identity, and the author of Helvetica and the New York Subway System, both published by MIT Press. He writes about letter design in the blog Blue Pencil. Paul Shaw, thanks for taking time to be on the MIT Press podcast today. Well, thank you, Chris, for asking me. So for those of us, including me, before I read The Eternal Letter, Two Millennia of the Classical Roman Capital, could you explain what the Classical Roman Capital is? Not easy to do without anything visual to show, uh, but the Classical Roman Capital uh, begins in uh, the end of the first century B.C. and reaches its sort of apogee at the beginning of the second century A.D. in uh, the inscription on the Trajan Column in Rome. What we're talking about is essentially the inscriptions that occurred during the time of the Roman Empire that uh, became models in subsequent centuries for people's ideals of what classical letter forms should be. And they were also tied to classical architecture, classical sculpture. Uh, that is a certain rightness of proportion. And the only capitals because the Romans had no small letters like we have today. Now, we talked about this a little before the show. Uh, you're the editor of this book, and one of the essays talks about movie posters and the classical Roman capital. So is there a movie poster that people can go look at to get a sense of what we're talking about? Well, what we're talking about is actually more than what, what is involved in that in those movie posters. But what's in the movie posters is sort of the heart or the uh, the origin of this classical letter form. And what's in the posters is a typeface called Adobe Trajan uh, that was uh, inspired by the inscription of the Trajan column and named after it. Uh, it was produced by Adobe in 1989 by Carol Twombly. And at first, it didn't have much of an impact. And then in the mid-'90s, all of a sudden, Hollywood used it for, um, uh, what was it, uh, Titanic after it won awards, and for other movies like The Lion King after it won awards. The next thing you know, it became the go-to typeface for Hollywood movies. And currently, it's you can see it in the American Sniper advertisements. Sometimes they've tried other typefaces, but people keep coming back to, to Adobe Trajan. I mean, so much that, you know, I wrote about, about this phenomenon around 2000, and was surprised that Eves Peters, who wrote the, uh, the essay for us in the book. In your first answer, you talked about the Trajan Column. Is there, a reason that, is there a reason the example found on the Trajan Column is considered a standard? I imagine it's hardly the only example of that lettering in the Old Empire. There are lots of examples. They're not, you know, of course, identical. They're, you know, they're of a certain category. Um, and the Trajan Column has become sort of uh, lionized, uh, ever since the uh, Renaissance and especially the early 20th century. And some of it is just people, you know, following what other people have already told them to do out of laziness. But there's a good reason why that particular inscription uh, catches people's imaginations. And I would say the first is that it's an inscription that was done for an important person, an emperor, Emperor Trajan. Two, it happens to be uh, a, a monument that survives it's in its exact place. It has not been moved to a museum. You know, it's it's in almost perfect condition, uh, uh, other than a chip that was taken out in the Middle Ages uh, when somebody put a church up against the column. 
And the only real, you know, deterioration is through pollution and uh, a misguided attempt to to clean it in the late 19th century using acid. So it's in, you know, it's 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 important uh, in terms of text. It's uh, its original location. It's almost uh, intact, and uh, it also has every letter of the Roman alphabet, which is not the alphabet we use today. Where the Romans did not have uh, W or U or uh, J. K, Y, and Z, but other than that, it had every letter except for H that they used. So you can find every letter you need to recreate it, and um, it's beautifully done. This letter form went out of use with the fall of the Roman Empire. Was it someone in the Renaissance who rediscovered it? Well, actually, it was rediscovered a bit earlier. Not not exactly, but uh, in the late 8th and early 9th century under uh, Charlemagne, his Holy Roman Empire, they were creating the first minuscules or small letters, but uh, Alcuin of York, his advisor, was bringing back older letter forms associated with the Roman Empire as part of the, you know, trying to create the legitimacy and the, the heritage for Charlemagne. And so they brought back Roman capitals. They were not as accurate as in the Renaissance or today, but they had the spirit of, of the Roman capitals and certainly were not what had, you know, happened in between. The letters were seen as, you know, part of, you know, gaining a certain legitimacy as being the rightful heir to this important, you know, political uh, entity that had preceded him. Did the classical Roman capital have a particular champion during the Renaissance, or was it just swept up in the general enthusiasm for the classical world that the Renaissance is known for? There are a number of people who play roles. Uh, uh, in the very early uh, part of the 15th century, uh, Poggio Bracciolini, known as Poggio, secretary to some of the popes, uh, was one of the first to begin uh, rediscovering the Carolingian small letter, and then with it, uh, various forms of Roman capitals, not necessarily, you know, the Trajan form. Uh, and then the, the Trajan form really starts to come about somewhere around like, the 1450s, and we could track it to some people in Venice and Padua, uh, calligrapher Bartolomeo Sanvito, uh, people like Mantegna, the artist, and a couple others. Uh, and then... Uh, a Roman uh, sculptor uh, sort of takes it up. Uh, Andrea Bradio is not as well known, uh, and in his workshop, uh, we start to see it, you know, spreading uh, in tombs uh, during the, the time of Sixtus IV, who's reviving uh, Rome as a as a as a, as a capital uh, city. Uh, and it happens to coincide with printing in Italy in the 1470s, and it's one reason why these letters get copied. By the, uh, the 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 printers who are the the type the type makers of their day, uh, you know it's a fortunate coincidence for us that you know these these things happen at, the, at that moment. You know if if the if uh, the humanists in Italy had been inter- had not you know been interested in ancient Rome and Greece, we'd probably be looking at different letter forms today. Those of Gutenberg. There are people from later history who play a part in these essays. Men like Eric Gill, Frederick Gowdy, Walter Kaisch. But the man who caught my attention was Father John Caddish. Who was he, and what does he have to do with this history? Father Caddish is a fascinating figure. Uh, he was a side writer in Chicago in the 1920s. He grew up in an orphanage uh, and learned the craft of side writing. And then I'm not sure exactly how he decided or why he decided to become a priest. But he went to a, uh, a religious school in Iowa, uh, St. Ambrose in Davenport, and uh, then, in order to continue his uh, education, his theological education, he went to Rome in the early 30s. And while there, of course, as a 
person who had been working with letters, he got you know a perfect chance to look at you know the the, the model that everybody was interested in the Roman inscriptional capitals, and he got permission from the Mussolini government somehow to erect scaffolding and go up and actually look at these things face to face. He made rubbings of them, he made photographs, and he uh, began by the end of the thirties to claim, to, uh, you know, to tell people that he thought everything people had said about these capitals was wrong. <laughs> But it took him until the 60s to publish his book about this. People just, you know, were not accepting some guy, you know, who's a priest in Iowa. <laughs> so he made his own book. He, he did his own typeface for the book. You know, he, he, you know he, he did everything. He taught himself how to carve letters to prove his theories about, about the inscriptions. And, you know, self-published the book in the 60s and it predictably got a number of uh, complaints from the establishment, people he'd already expected complaints from. But, um, you know, since the 70s, um, he died in, I think, 70, 78, 79, um, his theories are now pretty much the established ones. Um, they've, they've, be, they've, be, they've uh, you know, taken over. And one reason why he's at the heart is because he, um, you know, began to rethink how these things were made and promoted them as, you know, in his view, the, the, the best example. I would, you know, I would disagree that the, you know, the other examples are equally good. Uh, but his theory was that the letters were made not initially by carving, but by writing with a brush, and not a pointed brush as you use in Asia to do calligraphy, but a broad brush, a wide brush, we call a chisel edge brush, which sign writers use, but which calligraphers don't, because they use pens and nibs. And with this broad brush, you can do things that a pen or a nib can't do. It's, it's both broad, but it's also flexible. And so he claimed that, you know, somebody using a brush like this and some paint just got up, you know, and painted the letters on the stone. Then the guy who carved it with a chisel came along, carved the final design, washed away any leftover paint, and you had your finished thing. And that the brush explained certain subtle features that people, you know, kept trying to solve through geometry. And since most people, you know, kind of ignored sign writers or looked down upon them, you know, this was kind of a radical idea that, you know, sign writers are not calligraphers or, or type founders or, or letter cutters, you know, were the ones who were creating the basic form. Uh, but as I said, you know, the theory, uh, you know, has gained traction, especially as more people have learned how to, to do letters as beautiful as those. I mean, not that there's that many. There's still probably a handful in the world, but it, you know, it is possible to do them without geometrical aids. And the connection uh, beyond Kaddish doing his book and slowly convincing people is that one of the people he was convincing early on was Lloyd Reynolds, who was a teacher of English and art history at Reed College, and who also taught a class in calligraphy there. And Reynolds, uh, in the early 60s, had the idea of bringing Kaddish to Reed College to make new uh, names for the dormitories when they were doing some renovations. And that just happened to coincide with a student named Sumner Stone, uh, who uh, had you know come on campus as a freshman and happened to watch this guy you know probably Kaddish painting these letters and then carving it was totally fascinating. He remembered this years later, when in the eighties he ended up as head of typographic design for Adobe, and he said, "Hey, we got to make some original typefaces. Let's make 
a real accurate letter based on the Trajan description using the research of Father Caddish. So <laughs> that's where Caddish shows up multiple times in our book. Yeah, you know, the whole thing with Kadish and Reed, and Reed, you know, small liberal arts college in the Pacific Northwest, being a catalyst for calligraphy and, and played no small part in the typographical development of the Internet age. Yeah, Reed College's role in the world of design and typography is an odd one because there is no, you know, design program at the school. Uh, what there was beginning in the, in the early 50s was uh, Lloyd Reynolds, uh, you know, with a lot of, you know, uh, opposition from the faculty, uh, creating a, a calligraphy class for those who'd be interested, seeing it as part of Western culture. But we also brought in uh, Japanese concepts, Zen, and other things um, to his students, and he tried to link it to literature and to art. And among his students, he had, you know, in the early 50s, he had important poets like Gary Snyder, who helped, you know, who learned how to, you know, write, do their handwriting calligraphically. And uh, you know other people like uh, you know uh, were his students, including Sumner Stone uh, in the in the 60s. By the time I got to read in the early 70s and 72, uh, Reynolds had retired, and he was teaching only at the museum in uh, Portland. So I took a class with him there, but I was not one of his you know uh, you know big booster students like most of them did because he kind of ignored me. But. Uh, his uh, successor at Reed was Father Palladino, who turned out to have been a student of Caddish's, which is how he got recommended to replace Reynolds. And Father Palladino was the one who inspired Steve Jobs. Jobs did not take Palladino's class officially, as, as I understand it. He had dropped out midway through the year, but hung around campus, which was not unusual back then in the 70s with students. And apparently he sat in on Palladino's class without Palladino kicking him out, which doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and that uh, class apparently influenced him so much he, you know, he, that he says that's where he you know, got passionate about having good letter forms, good typefaces on the first Macintosh. Not that he had Trajan, though. <laughs> you know, just a little mind-boggling to think we've gone from an unknown artist who worked on the Trajan column, having their work still being used with some frequency here in the 21st century. That's pretty cool. Well, one of the things about uh, type or fonts, as you know, people refer to them today, is that many of the forms we see today go back hundreds of years. You know, and most of them were typefaces initially. What's interesting about the Trajan is that it was not a typeface until 1989. I mean, actually, there was a version that Fred Gowdy did it did in 1936, which is not seen as being as accurate as the one that Carol Twombly did for Adobe in '89, and you can buy both of them, uh, you know, online. Gaudius has been digitized, but the one uh, that Carol did for Adobe, if you have any Adobe products, Photoshop, uh, InDesign, Illustrator, you probably have a free copy of Adobe Trajan. Paul Shaw, the editor of the Eternal Letter: Two Millennia of the Classical Roman Capital. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Chris, thank you very much for having me, and I hope everybody uh, appreciates uh, the continued relevance of this ancient letter form. I hope so, too. Thanks so much. Thank you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress, and you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.